Welcome to our Soul Food Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. If you're new to Calvary Chapel, we go through the Bible verse by verse. We have been going through the book of the Gospel of John, but since this is Christmas, we'll be deviating from that. If you'd like to follow along, your Bibles will be in Genesis 35 this morning, starting at verse 1. Then God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and live there, and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods which are among you, and purify yourselves and change your garments. And let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God, who answered me in the day of my distress, and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods which they had, and the rings which were in their ears, And Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree, which was near Shechem. Father, we thank you for just the chance that we can gather together this morning. I pray, Lord, that these lips of clay, you would use them and anoint them, and that your word would go forth and do the work that only it can do through your Holy Spirit. We ask in your name. Amen. Amen. Dave, I feel like I'm echoing or something. It's strange how things change the older you get when it comes to Christmas. When I was a boy, the only thing I cared about was receiving gifts. I would, without mercy, bug my poor mother for days leading up to Christmas. I wanted to open up my presents early, and I was absolutely relentless in my endeavors. By December 20th or so, she would just start letting me open one present a day if I would just leave her alone. It was that or her becoming addicted to Valium. But as you get older, you realize the Bible is true where it says that it is more blessed to give than to receive. Christmas is a time of giving marked by the greatest gift of all time, the gift of God's only Son. He gave us everything by dying on a cross. So my question this morning is, what can we give him in return? I mean, it's not like he needs anything. Listen to this out of Psalm 50, verse 10. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that it contains. That teaches us that he not only owns the cattle on a thousand hills, 
He owns all the hills also. And that raises a question this morning. So what can we give this one who means so much to us, but who has need of nothing? Well, the amazing thing is that even though he is in need of nothing and is completely self-sufficient, there is one thing that although he doesn't technically need it, he desires from all of us. So if there were a Christmas tree in heaven, what present could we place under it as a gift to Christ? There's an interesting story found in the book of Genesis chapter 35 that speaks to this. Look with me at verse 1. Then God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and live there, and make an altar there to God, who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. Here's the setting. To understand this passage in Genesis 35, we must go back around 30 years to a time when Jacob first went to Bethel. At that time, he was fleeing for his life after tricking his father out of his brother Esau's birthright blessing. Jacob was a fugitive on the run, and his first night away from home was spent in a place called Bethel. That night, as he slept with a stone for a pillow, he had a dream about a ladder that was going from earth up to heaven. That night, Jacob wrestles with God, and God changes his name from Jacob, which means cheater, to Israel, which means he strives with God. It was so awesome that Jacob said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he called the name of that place Bethel. All this happens in chapter 32. But what is interesting is that until after the passage that we'll read in just a moment, He is still called Jacob and not Israel. He will start being called Israel in chapter 35, verse 10. As we'll see, perhaps that is because that Jacob still isn't ready to live his life intentionally and fully to God. The next morning, Esau, his brother, comes with 400 men. But instead of attacking him, he embraces him. But instead of Jacob going home to the land of his people as God had commanded, Jacob stops in the city of Shechem and buys a piece of land there and pitches his tent. This turns out to be a very poor decision because there in Shechem, Jacob's daughter Dinah is violated by the son of Hamor, the prince of the land. Chapter 34 of Genesis is an awful chapter. God is nowhere to be found. Sin had infected Jacob's family for the past 10 years, and it has led to awful consequences, as in things like incest, rape, and murder. But it's at this point that God says, Arise and go to Bethel. This is somewhat an overview of chapters 33 and 34. Actually, what we see in these chapters is nothing but the failures of Jacob. But in the midst of his failures, God spoke to Jacob. Jacob, I want you to arise and go back to Bethel. The problem was, as I said, that Jacob had previously stopped short of fulfilling his initial commitment. For one reason or another, he stopped short of Bethel and settled in the city of Shechem. 
When God said the word Bethel to Jacob, I believe it struck a note in Jacob's mind. It was at Bethel that Jacob met God in a very personal way. It was at Bethel that Jacob yielded his life to God. The name Bethel means house of God. He was going back to the house of God just like we have all done this morning. And God said unto Jacob, Arise and go up. In light of Jacob's situation, what God says to Jacob amazes me. He doesn't say, Sit down, you're benched, or back off, you're done, or that's it, you're through. He says, Arise and go up, because God is a God of unbelievable grace. Thirty years have now passed since Jacob first made his vow to God there at Bethel. Twenty years serving Laban and another ten years living in the city of Shechem. But after thirty years, Jacob finally decides to come home to God. By the way, nothing ever positive happens when people get away from God. Renewal starts when people have had enough of their old life and habits and desire a fresh encounter with the Lord. Perhaps that is the story of your life too. Maybe many years ago you made a vow to God, but then you put your life on autopilot, and to this day you've never fulfilled that vow, and you've never came home to God. If that's the case, then this account is good news for you this morning. Because it shows that a promise-keeping, patient God makes it possible for you to fulfill that vow and to come home to Him, no matter how long you have been away. But we also learn here that we also have to do our part. When I want to come home, God will show me the way, but I have to take the wheel. And so after the murderous rampage in Shechem, God calls Jacob to obey his vow and go back to Bethel. God is calling Jacob to spiritual renewal after drifting spiritually for years from God and instead moving to Shechem. Maybe the trade routes offered financial security or the grazing land for the animals were good. Yet God has not given up on him. The New Testament says it like this, Who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. That good work is being conformed to the image of Christ. Much like the story of Jacob, the book of Revelation describes a congregation who had drifted spiritually that Jesus calls back to spiritual renewal. He describes their drifting as having abandoned their first love. Do you know what it's like to abandon your first love? Let me tell you how it happens. First, your attitude changes. Then your desire diminishes until you finally just stop. Those activities you would never have considered missing because you enjoyed them so much lose their appeal, and you begin just going through the motions. But as you continue to drift, 
These activities become a burden to the point you dislike doing them and even resent doing them. You blame outside circumstances for the way you feel, but most accurately, it is an internal heart issue. So Bible reading and church attendance and hanging out with other Christ followers starts to fade. Prayer becomes forced and laborious. You start complaining and criticizing church. Worship is too long. The sermons are boring. You no longer have any time to serve or to help out. These activities are dull compared to the other activities in your life. I know this because I have felt the same way at times in the past. Now, Scripture gives us the steps to overcome this drifting. First, remember from where you have fallen. Second, repent. And third, repeat the works you did at first. Remember, repent, and repeat. First, recognize and remember that you have fallen and it's not good. In fact, it's dangerous. Then remember from where you have fallen. Remember what it was like and what you did because you loved doing it. Then finally, repent from abandoning Christ as your first love, recognize it as sin, and turn back towards making Christ your first priority. And third, repeat the works you did at the first. What did we do when we first came to the faith? Well, I was consumed with Bible reading listening to Christian music, reading good Christian books, going to home group, and spending time with others who encouraged me spiritually. We must constantly fight against drifting by correcting our course and our direction. This verse should speak to every one of us, regardless of where we are in life. From time to time, God calls us to return to our place of encounter, to return to our place of initial dedication, to return at least in our memories to the place and time that we made that commitment to him. These are important chapters in our lives. They are markers to our journey, signposts that help to keep us on track and reminders of whom we serve and why. And so in our text, the Lord says, now go back to the place where you first met me. How I appreciate the Lord, because that's what he also says to you and me. We tend to think God is mad at us, is angry with us, and has had enough of us. But later Paul would come on the scene and say, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And at this point, Jacob and his clan, they're neck deep in sin. And yet God says, rise up, let's get going on the right path again. Verse 2, please. And Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God, who answered me in the day of my distress, and has been with me in the way which I have gone. I think forgetfulness was part of Jacob's problem. When I read between the lines, I see a spiritual carelessness and casualness in Jacob's family. His children grew up without a sense of God's presence. 
They knew about their covenant with God, but idols were being worshipped in the community, and no one gave it a second thought. The murderous revenge carried out by Jacob's sons also show how out of whack these grown children have become. It was pain that finally got their attention. We need to know that God will only be at the center of our lives if we keep him there. Sadly, it's easy to shuttle him off to one side. You know how it is. Life is busy. There's this and that that needs to be done. It's always one thing after another. Plus, going back to a holy place to have a personal revival? Well, that's far harder than staying on the paleo diet. But when sin or sorrow has shut down all of life's delights, closing all the doors of escape, God beckons us back to himself, whispering, I'm waiting for you. Maybe you know the feeling. The first thing Jacob does is tell his family to put away the foreign gods that are among you. You see, Jacob's incomplete obedience has left his family vulnerable to problems. By the end of Genesis 35, he has done that. But in Genesis 34, he had stopped short of full obedience. Had he fully obeyed in the first place, all these bad things might have been averted. Even then, God providentially redeemed the mess and worked it all together for Jacob's ultimate good. Keep in mind that Israel was to be a separate people under God's covenant. It would seem that Jacob was getting way too cozy with the ungodly world surrounding him. And so God used the conflict to separate him from these ungodly people and protect him from something more that would be even more negative. By the way, sometimes a negative event can't be protecting us from something even more negative. Never is God the author of sin, but he's often working, working preemptively on our behalf. But first they needed to put away the foreign gods. Jacob recognized how important it was for his family to identify and get rid of anything that would hinder them drawing near to God. Now, I doubt that anyone here this morning has any carved images in your house that you worship. If you do, set up some counseling time with me. <laughs> but that doesn't mean that we don't also have idols in our lives that keeps us from drawing near to God. I find it intriguing that one of the most popular shows has been American Idol. Of course, the idols we worship and serve are no longer made of stone or carved from wood. They are the false gods that reside in our hearts. John Calvin, the reformer, spoke of the heart as an idol factory. I'm confident that none of us bow down to little images, but more of us are actually engaged in idolatry than what you might think. Today, our idols have taken a different form. It works like this. Whatever consumes our thoughts, whatever takes up our time, and whatever we spend our money on determines our true loyalty. Idols actually keep us from God's presence. Whatever holds our loyalty also holds our attention. 
Now, God is not threatened by the idols people worship, but he is concerned about what they do to us. Idols make us deaf, dumb, blind, senseless, and paralyzed to the things of God. There is no renewal with God when people are carrying idols. For most of us, I'm convinced that our biggest and most destructive idol is the idol of self. And until we identify that idol and take steps to make sure we remove it from our lives, we won't be able to take the wheel and draw near to God either. Next, Jacob tells his family to change your garments. Why would Jacob tell his family this? Were they a bell-bottom family in a skinny jean world? (laughs) Were they wearing last year's white sandals after Labor Day? No, of course not. The changing of clothes had nothing to do with fashion, but all to do with what they looked like. Jacob's family is now looking like everyone else. James 4.8 tells us to do what Jacob told his family to do. It says, Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and well. Change your laughter into mourning and your joy into gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Now make no doubt about it, cleaning up for God can be painful. We can't wash away our sins, of course. Only Christ can do that. But deep repentance is not easy, just like it isn't easy to throw away a shirt that we've come to love. Paul wrote in Ephesians 4.22, You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul then tells us to put off things like lying and anger and stealing and unwholesome talk and bitterness. Why? So we can put on new things like kindness, compassion, and forgiveness. But trying to straddle the fence between the sacred and the secular is a miserable existence. You've heard me say it many times over the years. You have too much of the world to enjoy Christ and too much of Christ to enjoy the world. That's the way it is with those who try to live for the Lord and the pleasures of this world at the same time. They are trying to walk two separate roads which can only lead to disaster in the end. There's an old African proverb that says, the man who tries to walk two roads will split his pants. (laughs) That's what's happened to Jacob. God had called him back to Bethel, but he chose to settle just 15 miles away in Shechem at the crossroads of trade, possibly in order to get rich. So, Sure, he built an altar there, but his attempt to live for the world and for the Lord at the same time tore his family apart. Jacob's daughter encountered a man who violated her. His sons became murderers and thieves. And then Jacob was disgraced. And so what did he do? He went back to where he was supposed to be. Bethel stood for everything 
that truly mattered. There's a place like that for us too. We can also look at Bethel as the place where God started working on the character of Jacob. And it's a place where he is willing to start working on our characters also. Verse 4, please. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which were in their hands and the earrings which were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree, which, which was by Shechem. Notice God didn't say to Jacob, if you deal with the foreign gods that are in your family, I might give you a second chance. No, God said, arise, let us go up to Bethel. Perhaps it was because Jacob was so amazed by this that he said, it's time to clean up. Not so God will call us, but because he has called us. That's what grace does. When I realize how good and benevolent and merciful God has been to me day after day after day, it causes me to want to put away my trinkets and toys that are not of him. Too often we can think, I've got to get my life cleaned up, and then maybe I can hear God's voice. Maybe then he'll lead me again. No. God is ready to lead us today right where we are. And it's because of that that it should cause us to say, Lord, you're just so good. I don't want the things of the world anymore. So Jacob says, put away your foreign gods and throw away your earrings. Why would he mention earrings, you may be wondering? Because they are ungodly. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) One commentator said... The earrings were probably worn as amulets and charms, first consecrated to some god or formed under some constellation on which magical characters and images were drawn. So apparently the rings in their ears were magic charms. You see, they had stopped trusting in God and began to put their faith in magic charms and other things, which didn't do them much good, did it? And so evidently Jacob's family has added pagan gods and trinkets to the idols that Rachel had stolen from her father. Here Jacob says, we're going to Bethel. We're going back to the house of God. So give me all the earrings and bracelets and stuff you picked up from the pagans. Before we go any further, let's ask ourselves, what makes a god, little g, a god? A God is a person or place or anything that occupies preeminence in our lives. It is anything or anyone that dominates your thoughts or emotions or controls your actions. A false God offers you identity, meaning, value, purpose, security, significance, and pleasure. But here's the thing. It never delivers. Satan's original sin was he wanted to be like God. His strategy with Eve was to tell her she could be like God. Today, his tactics have not changed. People have failed to become consecrated to God and God alone. They believe they can live for themselves and for God at the same time. But there is no such plan in the Bible. D.L. Moody said, I believe firmly that the moment our hearts are emptied of pride and selfishness and ambition 
and everything that is contrary to God's law, the Holy Spirit will fill every corner of our hearts. But if we are full of pride and conceit and ambition in the world, there is no room for the Spirit of God. We must be emptied before we can be filled. So Jacob buried all the idols and the charms, declaring that they were going to trust in God and God alone. I mentioned earlier, if there was a Christmas tree in heaven, what present could we place under it as a present to Christ? I think this passage gives us our answer. What did Jacob and his family do with all their sin? They buried them under the tree. The tree in scripture, of course, speaks of the cross. In other words, the picture is that Jacob left his sin at Calvary. When Jesus died on the cross, not only was the penalty of sin paid for completely, but power over sin was provided fully. This is an amazing and potent truth. It means you can leave here this very morning and say, Lord, truly you are good in allowing me to return to Bethel once more. I'm tired of my sin. And I want to make my way free and unencumbered of all the trash that entangles me. But practically, how does that happen? You reckon or consider the old man or woman dead. You say, Lord, on the basis of your word, I no longer have to do that go there or be involved with the other. Not because of positive thinking, but because of what you did for me on Calvary. Just as by faith you receive forgiveness, so also by faith you can achieve victory. Thus, I can say to that little box of Debbie Swiss rolls, (laughs) I no longer have to submit to the demand you are placing on me. I reckon the old man dead to that desire. And I truly, honestly, absolutely, unequivocally can turn away from those sumptuous, delectable, chocolate rolls of debauchery. And I can walk free if I choose to. If you haven't spent time in Romans 6 lately, I encourage you to marvel at it and say, Thank you, Lord, that because on the, what you did on the cross, you not only removed the penalty of sin, but broke the power of sin. I don't have to give in. You can walk away this morning a free man or a liberated woman. My beloved, I am simple-minded enough to believe that applies to a heroin addict, to a gossiper, to a person who's hooked on pornography, or who is self-absorbed, and even a person with a negative attitude. Whatever the sin might be, its power was shattered on the cross. Give me that stuff, Jacob said to his family. They could have said, no, it's too strong. No, it can't be done. No, it's too important to me. Instead, they responded to the command given by Jacob, just as you can respond to the word given you by the Lord. As we close this morning, here's what the Lord would say to me and you. I want your toxic waste. I want to forgive all your sin. 
The gift I want from you this Christmas is not the latest iPhone or some other trinket. What I want from you is the stuff that is causing you pain. I want the stuff that is destroying your peace and all the important relationships in your life. This Christmas, I simply want all of you. And that is the best present we could ever give the Lord. And Father, I pray you would make that true in every heart represented here today, wherever they are with you, Lord. I pray today would be the day that we would fully give in, that we would leave Shechem, which has never satisfied us in the past anyway, and move towards Bethel, to that place of commitment and consecration. We thank you for what you have done for us. It is during this season that we remember and recall the gift that you gave. I pray that we would return that gift today. We ask in Christ's name, amen. We're not going to have a final song, so let me pray for the food, and then you guys make your way down the hallway. Father, we do thank you for this food, for all the people that prepared it. I just pray, Lord, that we would have a good time of fellowship and an encouragement, and we would just enjoy one another's company today.